Last week we looked at two foundational concepts concerning a a biblical ministry. I called them foundational truths because they are crucial for the establishment of the church. But they are also crucial for the establishment of a church plant and the continuation of any ministry, any local church after Pentecost too. They are foundational truths for a biblical church ministry and they are also foundational truths for a thriving personal walk with God. We saw last week that the two foundational truths for a biblical ministry are the right motivations of a biblical ministry. That is, what is it that drives your heart to do what it should do? And then also the right expressions of a biblical ministry. We saw that the right motivations of a biblical ministry included the imminent return of Christ, knowing that any time He could come and we should be ready. And we also saw that the indwelling presence of the Spirit is what drove us to do what we were supposed to do. And then also we saw the incredible glory of the message. It's the gospel that is constantly driving us and motivating us to do what we do. And again, we've said it so many times, but the gospel is not just for the unbeliever. It is for us believers every day, all the time. The more we know the glory of the gospel, the more we are motivated to live for our King. We saw these three things then motivated us to write expressions. And biblical ministry was demonstrated in Acts chapter 1 because of their right motivations. We saw that the right expressions of a biblical ministry include a diligent obedience. And we saw this, that the disciples did exactly what Jesus told them to do. They went back to Jerusalem going against maybe the safe thing. And they went back and, and stayed there until Pentecost. As a matter of fact, they stay there longer because Jesus tells them to stay there. The Spirit in, inclines them to stay and minister to Jerusalem first. And so they stay there. There was also consistent unity. This is an expression of a biblical ministry. There's unity within the brethren. We get along. We have one mind and one heart and one thought. And we're focused on the gospel together. And then we saw that there's fervent prayer and how we all seek the Lord and we depend upon Him because that's what biblical ministries do. They pray, they petition, they seek God. This is what we do. Now today we're going to look at the last expression of biblical ministry, guidance by authorities. In our culture where everyone does what is right in his own eyes and everyone wants to be their own king and Everyone thinks they deserve to be served. Guidance by authorities is very countercultural. Submission to authorities is frowned upon in our society. Independence and self-rule and having a voice is all that matters in our society. But beloved, a God-honoring ministry does not work this way. In fact, All of the other expressions of biblical ministry depend upon this one expression. Submission to authority. This is it. There is no diligent obedience without submission to authority. There is no consistent unity without guidance by the authorities. 
There is no fervent prayer without submission to authority. Obedience will not happen if everyone says, I am my own king. Unity will not happen if everyone says, I must have my way. Prayer will not happen if everyone says, I want to do this thing my way. Because prayer in its sense says, Your way, Lord. Authority and how we respond to this authority will make or break this church. I'm telling you. Authority and how we respond to it will make or break our individual walks with God. Arguably, this is the determining factor for ministry and for church and your walk with God. If a ministry is led by an authority that's off the mark, guess what? The ministry will be off the mark. If the leader is righteous and he follows what God wants and he does, the leaders follow what God wants, but the people say, I'm not going to submit to that authority, guess what? Still going to be off the mark. But the early church, when we see it, they responded appropriately to biblical authority. The early church was countercultural. The early church was the opposite of the world, wasn't it? The early church was guided by righteous authorities. Now, not perfectly. We'll see that in a little bit. But they sought to serve God and were empowered by the Spirit to do it. And the early church followed and thrived. I, I admit, as I get to go through this... I, Man, this, this could be almost self-seeking, couldn't it? If you're not submitting to the elders' authority, you're off the mark. You know, y'all need to submit to me. <laughs> that sounds kind of, kind of, whoa, it's all about you? No, it isn't. No, it isn't. I think we have a really difficult time in our culture, in our society, in our thoughts of submitting to anybody. It's a cuss word in our society. Submission? <gasps> oh, no. You should have an equal voice. You know, I, I, I and, and this is high horse stuff, so I'll probably, I'll make it short. You know, we weren't established as a democracy. We're established a country as a republic. Do you understand that? If everybody has a voice, guess what? Everybody's their own king. And guess what? We're in for a fall. There has to be submission to authorities. Now, Lord, please, make those authorities, God-honoring authorities. But ladies and gentlemen, we've got to get this, and it's, it's in the same in the church. By the way, I think we see it in the thriving congregational rural church in America. Do you understand what I mean by that? you understand that you're at an elder-led church? Oh, man, Mike, why are you going there? I think it's the model that the Bible has demonstrated. There has to be leaders. Do I think I'm worthy to be up here? Absolutely not. Do I see that there are, I'm a fallen man 
Without God? Yes. Do I make mistakes? Do Mark and I and Ronaldo and make mistakes? Absolutely. You're going to have to be patient with us. But that's how the Bible shows us in Acts 1, doesn't it? That there's leaders that are leading. leading. Today we see in the passage three examples of ministry led by righteous authority. The three authorities that guided the early church were these. The selected authority, the chosen authority, the scriptural authority, and the sovereign authority. This is what made or break the, made the church. This is what makes or breaks our church. So let's start with the selected authority we see here in our passage. The early church was guided by a specially chosen group of men, the apostles. These were 11 men who Jesus had specifically appointed to establish his church. They were the foundation. Jesus had previously made this statement concerning the apostles. Look at Luke 22, 28 to 30. You are those who have stood by me in my trials, and just as my Father has granted me a kingdom, I grant you that you may eat and drink at my table in my kingdom, and you will sit on thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. These were especially select group of men. They had authority from God. The emphasis on these chosen men is obviously obvious in our in Acts chapter one, as they are specifically named by name again in the passage. You know, when a name is given, it's given for a reason. It's to say these are specially chosen men, these men, and their names are repeated in a list numerous times in the New Testament. In our passage, we see these twelves, these eleven men with one traitor who had gone away. So we will see the traitor had to be replaced because the twelve, the promise in, in Luke 22 was for the twelve tribes. They were going to rule on the twelve thrones or thrones judging the twelve tribes of Israel. So they had to be replaced or that one had to be replaced. We will see in our passage that Peter gives the qualifications for the twelve apostles. Initially, however, we see here, these men are given a special authority over the disciples. These were some specially selected men appointed to lead the flock. So I kind of want to look at and do a, a character study just a little bit of these men as we look at our passage and see what these guys are all about that were leaders. Because I think that that's what should drive all leadership. Whether it's in your home, you should look like this. And in the same way, in your workplace, or even here. Ladies and gentlemen, if I don't look like this, leave. Go somewhere else. Do you understand? And I have to admit, as I was praying again today, I was thinking, man, Lord, I need you. I need you. This is convicting as we go through this. I am a desperate man needing God's help to be able to do this. And these men were desperate men that trusted in God to accomplish it. Let's look at these leaders, though. They were bold leaders. There was bold leadership from these men. Peter stands up representing the apostles, speaking authoritatively to the group of 120 people. We see that in verse 15. 
At this time, Peter stood up in the midst of the brethren, a gathering of about 120 persons was there together, and he said, look, he stands up, he has bold leadership, he's courageous, and he says it. And again, thus saith the Lord, right? Listen. And he speaks boldly. I think sometimes when I listen to John MacArthur, I'm like, wow, that guy speaks with some courage. That guy speaks boldly. But I think he would argue that his authority is not himself. It's ultimately the scriptures. And he says, boom, thus says the Lord. That's how we have to be as leaders. We have to be bold. We have to be courageous. This is what God's called us to do. And this is what we express, right? Also, they're helped leaders. Peter stands up and he gives the interpretation of an Old Testament scripture. In verse 16, it literally says, Brethren, the scriptures had to be fulfilled. And we'll talk about in a little bit what he unfolds in that verses, in those verses. But let me tell you, as I studied it, I was shocked. Because it, it's not easy. These are some very difficult passages. I would argue that Peter had special revelation just to be able to say what was fulfilled. It was only God, the Spirit, that was working in these men to accomplish that. And by the way, um, I just want you to say know that I don't have that special revelation. So you have even more of a fallible leader than the early church did. Just realize that's a difference. I make mistakes. Okay? But it doesn't change the fact that all of the leaders still are supposed to lead. Do you understand? Here, these guys had special revelation. And the Spirit was working. There's no way. Only the Spirit could have done that. And that's what Jesus had said was going to happen. In John 14, 26, 6, Jesus had said... But the Helper, the Holy Spirit, whom the Father will send in my name, He will teach you all things. Wow! He will teach you all things? I am convinced that the Spirit was already working in these men. Had Pentecost happened yet? No, but there was obvious. It was obvious. You can't look at those verses and get them from Psalm 109 and Psalm 69 and go, Oh, yeah. This is talking about Judas. There's no way you could read that. Unless the Spirit of God was teaching you all things. They were getting special revelation. Beloved, there is a change at Pentecost. But the Spirit was already helping these men. The Helper was there. And that's what leaders need. <laughs> my success is dependent completely. And my... Biblical leadership in application in your home, you will only be a good leader, men. Listen, if God helps you, period. You will not be the man God wants you to be without the Spirit of God helping you. Fact. Can you raise a child? No. You can't. Can you raise them in a way that honors God? No, not without the Spirit's help. All of this is the truth. And what you see with these guys is that they demonstrated the help of the Spirit perfectly. In an amazing way, divinely. 
as examples to others. As they were filled and controlled by the Spirit, they demonstrated and did these great things. So they were helped leaders. And they were humble leaders. (laughs) There was humble leadership. Peter was doing exactly what Jesus had told him to do after he was restored. Again, I love this verse. I love this section of Scripture in Luke 22, 31. Remember, before Jesus had died, Peter says, if everybody goes away, everybody everybody leaves, I'm going to die for you. I'm standing with you. I'm with you. He doesn't say it once. He says it numerous times. And Jesus, at one point, rebukes him and says, Simon, Simon, behold, Satan has demanded permission to sift you like wheat. But I have prayed for you that your faith may not fail. And you, when once you have turned again, strengthen your brothers. Do you understand Peter in Acts 1 is now stepping up to do the very thing the Lord had commanded him to do? He's doing it. He had been previously humiliated. And everybody knew what Peter had done. Everybody knew that he had failed. Everyone knew that Peter had promised faithfulness to death. Everybody knew that Peter had denied the Lord three times. You know what makes a leader, though, a great leader? Is somebody that when they fall, they're humble enough to say, yes, you're not getting the great, perfect Peter. You're getting a man that knows Christ. And my hope is in him alone. And I'm a dependent man on him. That's a great leader. I've said this before and I cannot say it enough. A leader is a leader in repentance. That's a leader. Somebody that is the primary leader of repentance in the house. Who is it? I think it should be the man. Really? Yes, men. Step up. Lead. Own your sin. Turn from your sin. Acknowledge Christ. Be humble. That's what leaders do. We got it backwards in our culture. Leaders point out everybody else's sin. It's the opposite. Oh, folks. You see this in Peter. He leads even when he knows the flock knows his weaknesses. And the longer you're here, many of you, the more you know me, the more you know just how I'm just a a man. And the more you know me, you know, you've heard the whole idea of pastors live in a glass house. You've heard that? Yep, they do. All of you are observing us. You know what? Good. Come to my house and you're going to see me and who I am. You're going to see me sitting at the dinner table with my dear, sweet little Julia trying to get her to eat her food and getting a little frustrated and repenting and turning to God and begging Him to help her eat. I'm a man. Peter was a man. But 
this is what leadership is. It's humble. Man, it, it, you see how hard this, this is a, like an impossible sermon. This is. I'm just crushed by even the truth of what's in this, in this passage. I need God. Please pray for me. Pray for Mark. Pray for Ronaldo. Pray for us. Notice also they're gracious leaders. Peter was leading with grace. Notice closely. Look at these passages. I know I'm taking a long time to get through this, but man, it is glorious in here. So wow, good stuff. Look at Acts 1.14. These all with one mind were continually devoting themselves to prayer along with the women, Mary, the mother of Jesus, and with his brothers. You say, okay, so what's the big deal, Mike? Where's graciousness here? Oh, at first glance, you might not see it, but it is a big deal. This is Jesus' half-brother. Do you know who they are? Oh, you need to know. Look at John 7. In John 7, in John 7, verse 5, it says, For not even his brothers were believing in him. These are the ones that didn't believe in Jesus. These 12 have watched them at various points along the way, what? Deny Christ. Matter of fact, look at this passage. This one was shocking. Mark 3, 20, 21. This is obviously dealing with his, uh, pointing to his family. And he came home, Jesus, and the crowd gathered again to such an extent that they could not even eat a meal. When his own people heard of this, they went out to take custody of him, for they were saying he has lost his senses. Or his mind. Most likely this is referring to his own half-brothers. You know, Mary had other children, contrary to what the Roman Catholics say. And those other children grew up with Jesus. And then when Jesus started his ministry, they looked on him and said, No, I don't believe in him. They thought he had lost his mind and said it. And so think about this for a second. If you were a leader, what would you do? I've just been, wow, this is great. This is good stuff. Think on this. You're in the upper room. You've watched for three years. These guys have denied Jesus. I don't know about you, but they can't. They're not allowed in. No way. Keep them out of the upper room. But here they've repented. And what's he say? Come on in. This is, they're still leading that group. Showing unmerited favor to even those that had rejected him the whole time that they were serving Jesus. It was not until the resurrection when James, Jesus revealed himself to his half-brother James. It's very interesting to me. Beloved, Jesus' half-brothers were not believers. And yet, once they became believers, immediately they were in the group. And they were leading them graciously. Oh, this is some really good stuff for us, right? Leaders look on people and they they show grace. They give unmerited favor to people that maybe have even harassed them. You you say, I want to be a leader. Here, here you go. Here's how you determine whether or not you're 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 going to be able to be a leader. You ready? When people give you a hard time, you don't return revile for revile. You don't make it your goal to smush anybody that gets in your way. 
You see how that's the opposite of what culture says? Our culture says, step on anybody that gets in your way and then you're a great leader. You're fired, quote. Right? Sometimes the greatest leaders are the ones that show unmerited favor to those that are treating them bad and not taking it personally. This is what these guys were about. Notice also they were chosen leaders. The apostles were specially chosen men to lead. Notice Peter gives the qualifications and or basically how they could be one of these men that God chose. And he says, therefore, it is necessary that the men who have accompanied us all the time that the Lord Jesus went in and out among us beginning with the baptism of John until the day that he was taken up from us, one of these must become a witness with us of his resurrection. So they put forward two men, Joseph called Barsabbas, who is also called Justice and Matthias. The qualifications are clearly shown here. They accompanied the Lord Jesus all the time. That was an apostle. Was a witness of his resurrection. The other apostles confirmed their testimony. The Lord himself picked the apostles. Even Matthias, by the way, they prayed. Notice, they prayed, You, Lord, show which one of these you have chosen. God is the one that ultimately chose the apostles. The Lord Jesus. The lot fell to Matthias because that was God's choice. (laughs) That was the Lord's choice. These were the twelve apostles who will sit on the thrones judging the tribes of Israel, as Luke twenty-two thirty-one says. As I was thinking on this, I couldn't help but think about the other 108 people, especially this guy, Barsabbas. I thought about this guy. I, I, I was like, who is this guy? Did he have flaws? I mean, was there something going on in him? I mean, was he another Judas in disguise? Is that why the, Jesus didn't choose him? Isn't that the way our minds think? You, you realize that all those questions are just unbiblical questions. They're all wrong-focused thoughts. Really? Yes, ladies and gentlemen. You know, I did some research. I found out that Bersabbas, this guy... He stood for Christ the rest of his life. Church history says that he was one of the ones martyred in Nero's persecution. He wasn't picked, though. He had all the same credentials as Matthias, probably. Except one main one. You know what it was? The Lord didn't choose him to be an apostle. (gasps) Shocking. I can't believe I got left out, right? Bummer! I was that close. I was that close to being an apostle. No, you weren't. Before the foundation of the world, you weren't an apostle. And you're not one now either. Really? See, this is shocking, isn't it? This goes countercultural to us, doesn't it? I didn't get picked. Oh, I got some deficiency. Or 
Oh, that leader's wrong. Those people should have picked me. I have just as much as Matthias. Oh, no, folks. Barsabbas, he's a neat guy. <laughs> you know why? It appears, based on church history again, and I know I'm just I'm stretching it here, but it doesn't... It shows this idea of his faithfulness. The guys knew him. They saw him. That's why he was brought up. Folks, it's very important for us to get this. It's so important. A position of authority must not be an idol in our heart. I'm convinced that this is the downfall of many Christians. Our identity must not be in our role in the body, but instead it must be in our union with Jesus our Lord. If you write anything down, I think you ought to write that down. Look, if, if, if you're not picked to teach a class, what happens? Ugh. <gasps> uh. Wasting my gift. We must examine our hearts and ask ourselves this question. Is the role I have in this world what I live for? Do I live for my position? Or is my relationship with Christ and the glory of God what I live for? That's what it's about. If other leaders told you that you were not chosen to lead, how would you respond? But I have that desire for the position of eldership. Hmm. If the desire is an idol, then it's not a biblical desire. Do you understand? If, wise, if a wise preacher tells you that you don't have the gift set to preach, how would you respond? Now, I admit there's some prideful preachers out there, and, and I can be one of them. And I can fall into the trap of judging a book before I read the whole thing. And that's sin. And I'm going to stand before God with those kind of things. But be very, very careful. If a biblically wise person tells you that you don't have the gift set to be in a certain ministry, how would you respond? How about this one? This one will, this one will, ooh, this one will hurt. This one leaves a mark for me. If musically gifted people tell you that you can't keep a tone, so your your singing's a little off, and you shouldn't be singing up front, how would you respond? You need to listen again. <laughs> about this? Somebody says, look, it, it has the appearance that you just want the position. Maybe you should wait a little bit before it doesn't come off that way. Your heart's right. How would you respond to that? If a biblically sound teacher says, you know, you don't have the gift of teaching. Devastation.
if other biblical leaders say that you're not allowed to, to lead in a particular ministry, how are you going to respond? Ultimately, beloved, the way we respond will, be, will determine whether our view of God's authority is right. How we respond will determine whether or not our role is more important than our God. And all too often we get it backwards, don't we? I mean, let's talk about the hardest issue in the whole Bible, right? Wives, submit to your husbands. But those husbands got to love the Christ, love their wives like Christ loves the church. Now, every man in here is going, yeah, yeah, my wife's listening. You better not be. This is when all men close your ears. Listen carefully. God gives you a role, and that role is a gift from God. Doesn't matter what that role is, if your role, and you think that it's your job to lead, then you've got it backwards. It's up to God. He made us who we are, and we have the roles that He put us in, didn't He? Why did He pick Matthias? Because God is God, and He does what He wants. Being chosen by God was not some subjective decision either. It was God's choice. So I'm sure that Barsabbas was fine with it. How are you with your role? By the way, he didn't make it easier for Matthias by being chosen to be an apostle. He too was martyred in Jerusalem. Often being the leader gets you right in the line of fire. Take it from me. It's the truth. See how hard this message is? To not come off as self-seeking? I promise I'm not. I'm just trying to tell you what I think that these guys were all about and what they're like. Which brings us to the last point I want to make about uh, the apostles' authority. They were servant leaders. They were servant leaders. The apostles were servant leaders. Notice in verse 125, to occupy this ministry, service, is how you could translate that, and apostleship, from which Judas turned aside to go his own way. Folks, one of the biggest misconceptions of leadership is leaders get served more than they serve. This couldn't be further from the truth. Ministry is service. And the leader of ministry leads in service. Do you get this? By the way, if you're all about leading, then your life will reflect a servant's heart. If you look for ways to put yourself in a place to tell people what to do, then you're probably not a leader. That's a wild thought. If you're ready and willing to put yourself in a place where people will tell you what to do, you're getting close. You get this? Because ultimately, these men were told what to do all the time by the Lord. They did what He said all the time. If you'd like to tell people what to do, 
then you've totally missed it. However, if you look for ways to serve without regard for what others think of you, then you're beginning to look like a biblical leader. The greatest leaders are those who die for those whom they lead. Truth, isn't it? And this is what the apostles did. They served. Jesus said it well in Matthew 20, verse 26. It is not this way among you, but whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant. And whoever wishes to be first among you shall be your slave. Just as the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve, and to give His life a ransom for many. This is what it's about. So what we see in this passage is that this selected group of authorities or apostles in this early time were servant leaders. They were servant leaders. They were chosen leaders. They were gracious leaders. They were humble leaders. They helped. They were helped leaders. And they were bold leaders. They were sacrificial, divinely chosen, graciously guiding, humbly serving, spirit-helped, bold and courageous. This is what biblical leaders look like. This is exactly who the twelve were. God was masterful in His choice. Notice the scriptural authority. Peter says, Brethren, the scripture had to be fulfilled, which the Holy Spirit foretold by the mouth of David concerning Judas, who became a guide to those who arrested Jesus. Notice, we see divinely selected apostles appeal to God's scriptural authority. Peter got it. The apostles got it. God's word was the authority. Jesus had rebuked them for not believing the words of Moses and the prophets, and guess what they did? They got it. Oh, Moses and the prophets, that's what it's about. Jesus had shown them from Scripture all the answers were found in God's Word, and guess what? Peter stands up and appeals to scriptural authority. A great communicator whose message is his own is useless in a church. A great leader who does not depend on the Word of God is really a follower of the world and its ruler. You see this in this passage? He appeals to scriptural authority. He says, brethren, the Scripture had to be fulfilled. Peter appealed to the fulfillment of Scripture in the rise and fall of Judas. Now, the Old Testament foretold Judas' shame, and it also foretold his replacement. Really? Now... This one was difficult. This is quoting from, when he gives the quote, Psalm 69.25. You can just write it down. Psalm 69.25. When you go over to Psalm 69.25 and look at Psalm 69, you know what it, you see? It's an imprecatory psalm. Okay. Do we pray, and I've often asked this question, do we, do we pray imprecatory psalms in the New Testament, New Covenant time? You know, imprecatory psalms is calling down God's curse on a, a people. Okay? Should we be praying those? We, we had a little line, we just joking, we used to call us the, the imprecators. <laughs> Who are the imprecators in our church? They call down curses on people. Are we supposed to do this? 
Here is Peter appealing to in a precatory prayer about Judas. Now, was this passage fulfilled specifically in the death of Judas? Man, when you read Psalm 69, you're going you're gonna to go, wait a second. How do you know that this is Judas? I mean, you're reading along and all of a sudden you see the little phrase and then it's like on to the next thing and it doesn't look anything like it. That's not Judas. Is that Judas? That's talking about that. Now, this is a little difficult to understand, but I think Peter is saying that Judas fulfilled, uh, here we go, a type of one of David's previous enemies. Now, let me explain. We know David was a type of Jesus. Everybody would agree with that, right? Would everybody agree with that? Jesus, uh, David was a type of the king to come. Right? Most of you would agree with that, hopefully. That he prefigured Jesus and his kingship over Israel. Well, I think one of David's enemies was a type of Jesus' betrayer, Judas. So, David, King David, was writing a psalm talking about his betrayers and those that were his enemies and calling down these imprecatory psalms on them. (laughs) I think the enemy that David possibly could have in mind in Psalm 69 and Psalm 109 was Ahithophel. What? (laughs) Who's Ahithophel? Does anybody know who Ahithophel is? Okay, let me tell you why. This guy turns on David and consults with David's son, Absalom, to betray David. And it's very interesting. What's really interesting was that Ahithophel died exactly the same way that Judas did. They both were strangled to death. Most likely hung. It's an interesting thought. So when you come over to Psalm 109, and you see it says this, appointed a, appoint a wicked man over him and let an accuser stand at his right hand. When he is judged, let him come forth guilty and let his prayer become sin. Let his days be few. Let another take his office. Let his children be fatherless and his wife a widow. Now, what? David, I believe, is talking about an enemy. And is it possibly Ahithophel? I think so. By the way, I didn't get that by myself. I got it from somebody else. His name's S. Lewis Johnson. So if you want to look him up. He's an interesting fellow. I believe this is, again, David praying against Ahithophel. And Ahithophel appears to fulfill the events. At the same time, so when you look over at Psalm, you look over at 2 Samuel 17, 23, it states that Ahithophel strangled himself probably by hanging, just like Judas. So what do you have here? Well, ultimately, I think Peter knew his Bible very well. And the Spirit of God was working. And those passages and the events that happened to David kind of prefigured what was going to happen to Jesus and Judas. Now, you can take that or leave it if you want. That's the best I can do with it right now. Ultimately, it points to the scriptural authority, though. No matter what, you get that, right? Because Peter appealed to it. 
And understanding this kind of scripture this kind of way is supernatural. By the way, I don't think we're allowed to do that. I'm not allowed to do that. Do you understand? I can't go to read the story of Exodus and pick out a rock and say, you know, that's pointing, this rock was pointing to Jesus. Do you understand? I think I can only use scripture when it points to these kind of illusions. Do you understand? I'm not an apostle. You got it? So I think he makes these kind of illusions, and I just need to leave the scripture where it it lays. If he makes this kind of illusion, then I'm going to go with it. Okay? Be careful with your Bible study. Don't go read your Old Testament and read Jesus into every crack and crevice. Is he pointing to Christ? Does the Old Testament do it? Yes, but just be careful of finding a type in every single thing. We must submit to the authority of Scripture. Or we'll find ourselves falling into the, fi- the trap of the father of lies. Third and finally, we see the sovereign authority. This is such a crucial point in this passage. The reason is, it is so important, but the least likely of events are shown to be under the sovereign authority of God. The apostles got it. Even the horrific injustice of Judas' betrayal was part of God's divine plan. The early church got this. Now, I was talking to a fellow pastor just the other day about this, how in our circle, our churches, man, we bang the drum of God's sovereignty over and over and over and over and over and over again. We just like beat that thing to a death. You know, God is sovereign. He's in control. Everybody in this room, I'm, I'm almost positive, could quote Romans 8.28. I'm, I'm almost convinced. But, but, almost all of us fail regularly to apply that truth to our hearts. I would argue if you argued on the way to church, you were probably failing to trust in that truth. And that would be me. We didn't argue today because we drove separate, but <laughs> that sounded good. Praise God. Yeah. Uh, yeah. That's good. Does that fit? That's good. Yeah. We, uh, we have disconnect, don't we? But the early church got it. They got it. These guys got it. They didn't look at Judas and wring their hands and say, Oh, oh, no. They went, that's God's plan. That was God's plan. John 13, when Jesus had said this, he became troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to you that one of you will betray me. And the disciples began looking at one another at a loss to know which one he was speaking about. Now, this is very important. They didn't get it previously. They didn't understand it altogether then. Matter of fact, in John 13, 27, And after the morsel, Satan then entered into him. Therefore, Jesus said to him, What you do, do quickly. Now on no one of those reclining at the table knew for what purpose he had said this to him. For some were supposing, because Judas had the money box, that Jesus was saying to him, Buy the things we have need for the feast, or else that he should give something to the poor. They didn't know that Judas was going to be like this. This would have been a blind side. They would have, whoa, wasn't expecting that one. Who is this guy? 
He was with us the whole time. I trust him. He's a brother. But after they go, he fell. He fell because it was God's ordained plan. He was supposed to fall. It was intended by God for him to fall and for him to be replaced. And so we're going to do exactly what you tell us to do, God. Who's the one? Matthias is him. And they did exactly. They trusted in the sovereign hand of God in all events. That's why we, oh, oh, folks, do you understand? This is so crucial. I would argue that this understanding of the sovereignty of God is the way we survive in all circumstances. Our understanding. Why do these cowards become courageous? Why do these men that run for fear from being exposed then stand up and say, whether we serve you or God, you make the decision, but we're going to serve God. And why do, after they told you're going to be beaten, you better stop doing that, they say, we're going to do it anyway. We're going back out there. We're going to do it again. And then they beat them, and they do it again. Why? Because they know that every event is under the providential, sovereign hand of God. And they, they trusted in that authority. I am convinced our culture screams against this. It goes against it. But this is what makes or breaks a biblical ministry. You understand that everything that happens to you is under God's sovereign hand, even when you are betrayed. That's the point of the passage. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this time. Lord, we do pray that you will help us to apply these truths to our hearts. Oh, God, help it not to disconnect. Help us to trust your sovereign hand. Help us to submit to authorities in our life. Help us ultimately to submit to your scriptural authority. Help us to follow your word, to obey you, not to be afraid, not to be ashamed of the gospel, but to stand firm for you. Lord, we love you. Commit our lives to you. We trust you. We ask that you use us for your glory this week. We pray this in the matchless name of Jesus, our Lord. Amen. Please stand.